President Trump is forcing a national embarrassment on all of us by not yet conceding an election to presidential candidate Joe Biden. That is at least the story according to presidential candidate Joe Biden. Sir, what do you say to the Americans that are anxious over the fact that President Trump has yet to concede and what that might mean for the country? Well, um, I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly. Uh, the only thing that, uh, how can I say this uh, tactfully? I, I think it will not help the president's legacy. I think that uh, I know from my discussions with foreign leaders thus far that they are hopeful that the United States democratic institutions are viewed once again as being strong and enduring. And, uh, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's all going to come to fruition on January 20th. And between now and then, my hope and expectation is that the American people are, do know, do understand that there has been a transition. Yeah, uh, we do understand that there's been a transition. There's been a transition from the election into the legal process that will determine the next president. You know what I think is a national embarrassment? The fact that there's even a possibility that this doddering, crook, liar, plagiarist could possibly become the president. But he isn't the president yet. There's a whole lot of hoops to jump through before we find out who the next president will be. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. Joe Biden, an absolute embarrassment. That's what they say. This gets me so hot under the collar. This gets me so fuming, so stressed out that we've got to go through this nonsense, not merely the legal process of determining who the next president will be, but also counter the completely uniform media narrative. It gets me so pent up full of energy. The only way I can get it out is with my rad power bike. I strongly recommend you get a Rad Power Bike. You can take you around town, you can take you around nature, whatever you want to do. It's a great way to get outdoors without getting too hot or too sweaty. They're tons of fun. You know what Rad Power Bikes do? They can go up to 20 miles per hour without pedaling so that you can get out and about, but you don't need to work too hard to do it. They're also very affordable. Most e-bikes are in the $3,000 range. You know me, I'm a little bit more frugal. I don't necessarily want to spend that. Rad Power Bikes start at just $999. Most are under $1,500. They're really, really cool. Uh, it's a great hobby. It's also a great way to commute. Uh, especially these days as traffic is starting to pick back up again. Uh, I, I think they're just absolutely terrific. It also makes a great gift for someone who loves being active and loves being outdoors. Right now, for a limited time, Rad Power Bikes offers flexible financing for as low as 0% APR. That is as good as you can possibly get. Plus free shipping. Bikes are going to go super fast. They, they already are actually. So make sure that you order right away. Text Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S to 64,000 today. Get free shipping. That is Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S to 64,000. Text Knowles to 64,000. We are possibly going to transition, possibly I say, to a president who doesn't know how to text to numbers. Do you remember? You just had to go to Joe 30330. That would be very embarrassing if that man were to become president. But he hasn't yet. I felt 
Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had a much better answer on this. He was, he was asked as part of this media narrative that the race, which has not been called, has been called, and that we know that Joe Biden is going to be president. We don't know that. We won't know that for quite some time. He had a great answer on it as to how he's going to handle this transition. Is the State Department currently preparing to engage with the Biden transition team? And if not, at what point does a delay hamper a smooth transition or pose a risk to national security? There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right, we're, we're ready. The, the world is watching what's taking place here. We're going to count all the votes. When the process is complete, there'll be electors selected. There's a process. The Constitution lays it out pretty clearly. The world should have every confidence that the transition necessary to make sure that the State Department is functional today, successful today, and successful with the president who's in office on January 20th, a minute afternoon, will also be successful. That is what an adult sounds like. That's what a responsible politician sounds like. He has a, a bit of a joke. You know, he, they say, are you ready for the transition? He says, I'm absolutely ready for the transition into a second term. And he says, look, what will the transition be? We may get a second term. We may not get a second term, but we are going to follow the legal process. The idea that Joe Biden is suggesting that this is a great embarrassment that we don't know who the president is yet. First of all, if that is an embarrassment, that, is, that embarrassment is the fault of Democrats who forced widespread unsolicited mail-in voting on us unprecedented has never happened before. And they knew they admitted at the time that if you have widespread unsolicited mail-in voting, you're not going to know who the president is on election night. And it's kind of interesting. If you look at how the votes were counted, that uh, it seemed to shift from president Trump to Joe Biden in the middle of the night. Sometimes when, when they said there weren't even votes being counted in certain places and without Republican poll watchers, notably in Philadelphia. So yes, a legal process will play out. Bush v. Gore, how long did that take? 38 days or so total. I don't remember Joe Biden calling it an embarrassment uh, that Al Gore would not concede in that election, even though he had no evidence whatsoever that that election could be overturned. No, that is not an embarrassment. What is an embarrassment is that people want to break our constitutional norms, which clearly provide a legal process for how this election is going to go. The media haven't learned that. Maybe the media have learned that and they, they just want to play dumb. And for some members of the media, they don't have to play too hard at playing dumb. I actually, a member of MSNBC admitted this. So right now, and I think this story, people, people are not talking about it. There's a battle between Democrats and Republicans. Okay. There's another battle going on. And Mike Pompeo is alluding to this, which is the foreign policy battle. And there it's not so much Republican Democrat as elected people, the American people speaking through their elected representatives and the deep state, the permanent bureaucracy, which is most pronounced in the intelligence community and in foreign policy. That is where these guys who are the true swamp creatures, that is where they tend to live. Bill Kristol talked about this and other national security Republicans, you know, the types who just don't really care about what's going on too much at the domestic level. They just want to force their particular liberal internationalism on everybody. Bill Kristol was asked, if you had to choose between the deep state or the swamp state, what do you pick? He says, I choose, or I'm sorry, the deep state or the Trump state. He said, I choose the deep state, which is to say he chooses the swamp state. That is a big battle going on right now. And you're going to see in the coming days, the intelligence community, the State Department, foreign policy, that is going to be brought far up to the forefront because you had a foreign policy consensus basically since Bush the first, if not even earlier than that. 
And the president would change. You had Bush, you had Clinton, you had Bush, you had Obama, and the foreign policy wouldn't change. They would, they, there was a joke in 2008. They said, I, they told me if I voted for John McCain, we'd get another war in the Middle East. And that was true. I voted for John McCain. We got another war in the Middle East. Obama's foreign policy was basically indistinguishable from McCain's foreign policy. Maybe Obama gave a little more money to Iran, but in terms of the constant wars, the never ending wars, that was the same policy. You didn't, you didn't see that really change at all. The policy of bombing Saddam Hussein every so often, that, that had been going on for, for a very long, for a very long time. So that battle is going to come up and the media haven't learned a thing here. This MSNBC host, uh, I guess he thought his microphone was off. I guess he thought the camera was off, but he was asked what he knows. And I thought he gave a very precise answer. NBC's Kim Delanian has some new reporting on something that we talked about at the top of the hour, how the Trump administration is handling the transition with the incoming Biden team or not handling it, we should say, to a certain extent. This time it involves our intelligence community. Uh, Ken, what have you learned, sir? Okay. Uh, think we lost, think we lost Ken for a second. We'll try to get him back there. Now they thought this was a mistake. Now they thought this was a mistake that it was accidental. I don't think so. I think that was a very precise answer. What have you learned? Not very much. I can't use the words because I'll, I'll have to be bleeped out myself. So that's pretty, pretty fair. That should be the headline. What has the media learned? Blank, blank, absolutely blank. But then they cut back to him. They cut back to the guy and, and he makes his point. And you hear in the premise that the Biden, president-elect Biden is transitioning in. The election hasn't been called, but he's transitioning. How is this going to work for the intelligence community? Hey, Craig, first I want to sincerely apologize to viewers who may have heard some uh, me use profanity at the top of the, at the last hit. But what we're learning today is the potential impact of the resistance of the Trump administration to acknowledge the Biden win in the intelligence arena specifically. The intelligence community. Why do I care what the intelligence community thinks about a duly elected president? Or in the case here, a not duly elected president, someone who we don't know who the president is going to be. Why do I care what the intelligence community thinks? I like the intelligence community when they do their job well. That's good. I guess it helps our national security. I despise the intelligence community when they decide that they are going to take our republic into their own hands and try to undermine or overturn an election, as they did in 2015 and as they did in 2016. This is what would be one of the greatest losses if President Trump ultimately does not prevail in this election, if Joe Biden is named president. One of the great losses is that the deep state blob will solidify, will reform. And President Trump has done a great job of exposing these guys. Had Hillary Clinton won in 2016, we would have had no idea, no idea that the deep state under the Obama administration spied on the Trump campaign, used the weapons of the state to spy on their political opponents. We would have had no idea that they cooked up phony intelligence with the Hillary campaign and the DNC to try to frame President Trump, which led to a Mueller investigation for however many millions of dollars in two and a half years, which led to a fraudulent impeachment, which led to so much because of these particular leaks. Chuck Schumer admitted this early on when Trump said, I'm going to clean up the deep state, particularly the intelligence community. Chuck Schumer said, you should never go against the intelligence community. They can kill you nine ways from Sunday. They can get you so many different ways. They got dirt on everybody. Don't go up 
against them. That is what he said. And I think it was actually probably good advice to President Trump. Trump, fortunately though, had some courage and stood against it. What do I care? I don't care that the intelligence community wants Joe Biden installed president before the legal process plays out. It does nothing to me. You know, Senator Cruz, who is not just uh, my favorite U.S. Senator, but my podcast co-host over at Verdict, Senator Cruz took a really great swing at the deep state yesterday. He had Andy McCabe, that crooked FBI official who was deeply implicated in all the, the hoaxes of the past few years and the, the spying on President Trump's campaign. He got him on the Hill and he grilled him on his wrongdoing. Did James Comey authorize you to disclose information about the Clinton Foundation investigation to the press? I didn't need James Comey's authorization. I, I didn't ask if I you needed it. I asked, did he authorize you to disclose it? That's a yes or no question. I authorized the disclosure. Okay, of that you're material. still not answering my question. Did James Comey know about it and did he authorize it? Yes or no? Did he know about it? To my recollection, sir, yes, he knew about it. Did he authorize you? Did he, did you, did he in any way give you the green light explicitly or implicitly? I didn't ask Jim Comey. I, I'm not asking whether you question. asked. I'm asking, okay, according to the Washington Times, April 18th, 2018, Mr. McCabe insisted he told his boss that, that he had authorized disclosure about the Clinton investigation, but Mr. Comey has denied this claim. Uh, and Mr. McCabe told investigators that M Mr. Comey knew he had authorized disclosure and agreed it was a good idea. Is that accurate? Is that your testimony to this committee? That is my recollection. Oh, finally, we get an answer now. That's terrific. That's wonderful. Thank you, Mr. McCabe. It only took 700 tries. This is the thing about Senator Cruz that most impresses me. I do not say this to flatter him or because I'm, he's a friend of mine or because we've got the show together. I say this because he is better at this than any elected Republican I know. He can grill down to the heart of the argument and he can sniff out when someone is giving him BS, uh, basically unlike anything I've ever seen. You saw right at the beginning, he goes, did James Comey authorize this? And, and McCabe goes, well, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't ask James Comey. I, did I ask you if you asked James Comey? Well, I, I, and it doesn't seem to be. Answer the question, buddy. And it's, it really puts you off, off your guard. I remember Senator Cruz did this to Mark Zuckerberg one time. He, uh, he w was asking him basically, hey, Mr. Zuckerberg, why is, is, what color is the sky? Oh, the sky's blue. Yeah, hey, Mr. Zuckerberg, uh, does two plus two equal four? Yeah, oh yeah, it equals four. Okay, hey, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, why was Palmer Lucky fired? And it, it just kind of throws you off balance and finally you get an answer like we saw here. But the other, the other line that Cruz uses, very smart, it obviously comes from his courtroom experience, is he doesn't ask a question he doesn't know the answer to. So he knew the, those answers the entire time. And then he nails McCabe. You're aware that your testimony is 180 degrees opposite Mr. Comey's sworn testimony to this committee in which he insisted he has never authorized anybody to leak to the press. It, I, I don't, I'm not going to say what Director Comey said or didn't say to you. That would, however, your characterization of a leak is not accurate. The FBI has records that will establish whether you're telling the truth or Mr. Comey's telling the truth. Do you believe the FBI should make those records public? So if you're telling the truth, you can be vindicated. And if Mr. Comey's telling the truth, he can be vindicated. 
I, I'm not sure what records you're referring to, uh, Senator. Any and all emails, are... correspondence, records whatsoever indicating that Mr. Comey knew of your leaks and authorized them. I would very much like to see those records as well. As would I. Thank you. As would I. And I believe Senator Cruz, immediately after that exchange, went out and drafted a letter to Chris Ray at the FBI and to Bill Barr, the attorney general, to, to let those records open up. It can get a little confusing in this exchange because we're talking about all these arcane details. But it, what it comes down to is when we're talking about the disclosure of the investigation of the Clinton Foundation, when we're talking about all the shenanigans that have been going on at the FBI and DOJ for the past uh, four years, but notably when, when James Comey was in charge there, you're getting conflicting stories from Andy McCabe and from James Comey. Why? Well, you're getting conflicting stories now because Jim, Andy McCabe knows that he, he doesn't want to perjure himself. He knows that it's a crime to lie under oath. And he's a slippery guy, but he is not going to implicate himself in that crime. So now you've got these two guys going after one another. Regardless of whether or not President Trump gets a second term, it's very important to expose these guys now. It is very important to dig up as much of the swamp as is possible. The president's done a good job so far. He's got to ramp that up now. This is the time to make it happen because under a prospective Biden administration, none of that is going to happen. And these weasels who are taking away your constitutional rights and your political power, these weasels are going to get away with it if we don't take care of it now. And I think every other U.S. senator on the Republican side should be doing exactly what Senator Cruz did today. And I hope that the attorney general and the director of the FBI will release records. I mean, this is something President Trump could do right now. It would be wonderful. Release, declassify any and all records that can expose these political monsters, these deep state swamp creatures that are undermining our constitutional government. Declassify them. You know who has the right to declassify whatever he wants? The president of the United States. Talk about a smooth transition. Do we want a smooth transition to a swamp creature? Or do we want to give the people what they voted for in 2016, at least a little bit, in the event that we are not transitioning into a second Trump term? And we very well may be. But we've got to be prepared. It's very important to be prepared. It's very important to be ready. That's why we love our friends over at ReadyWise. Now is a better time than ever to be prepared with long-term nutritional food options. ReadyWise has a ton of options. You know this. Emergency meals, freeze-dried fruits and vegetables for convenient on-the-go nutrition, new adventure meals for hiking, camping, and other outdoor activities. Now, because of increased demand, supplies are limited right now. Some items may currently be out of stock. You got to call in quick. When government resources are strained, it can be days. It can be weeks before fresh food is available. Do not put yourself in this situation. I think we conservatives know it's important to be prepared uh, for any event. It gives you peace of mind. And for me, that's what I want. Also, there, there was an instance where we had ReadyWise meals around the office and I noticed they were disappearing. And I asked one of my producers who was eating them for lunch just all the time. There was, we were not under insurrection. He just felt they were delicious. You add water, they were excellent. R right now, my listeners can get free shipping at ReadyWise.com when entering Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S at checkout or by calling 855-453-2945. ReadyWise has a 90-day, no questions asked return policy. You're not going to need that. There's no risk in taking the initiative to get yourself and your family prepared today. That is ReadyWise, R-E-A-D-Y-W-I-S-E.com, promo code Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S, to get free 
shipping. We have to expose the corrupt spooks. There is a role for spooks in government. There have been many spies who have done many very good things to help the national interest of the United States, but there are a lot of crooked spooks too, like these people in the deep state, some of whom occasionally have to testify. There's one career spook that may drive me the craziest of all though, and that man's name is Egg McMuffin, Egg Mc Mr. Evan McMullen who ran valiantly against President Trump in 2016. He was going to be the conservative alternative because he was a career at the, at the CIA and then he worked on the Hill for a little bit and then he was an investment banker. And he was going to be the wonderful alternative to that monster, that unconservative man, Donald Trump. And thankfully, he didn't win. He got about four votes. And, and, it's, uh, he, and he's proven himself to be unworthy of the public trust every day since then. It, it's funny because, you know, I had this disagreement in 2016 with Jeremy Boring. We agreed on many, many aspects of the election, but I, though I was skeptical about whether or not Trump would be a New York Democrat or whether he'd be a conservative, I voted for him. I felt the alternative was so awful that I was willing to take a chance on Trump, and I'm glad I did. Jeremy voted for Egg McMuffin because he just, he was too skeptical of Trump. And he says now, he says, look, I think it was still defensible to be very skeptical of Trump in 2016, but I do regret voting for the Egg McMuffin because the Egg McMuffin has, has exposed what he really is and what too much of our intelligence community has become. Egg McMuffin just tweets out, quote, we should keep and publish a list of everyone who assists Trump's frivolous and dangerous attacks on the election. Name and shame forever. He is just the latest to join in on this attack on our free government, which is to say that we need enemy lists. Anybody who supports the president, you saw this from the Trump Accountability Project, who says that we need to publish lists, we need to go after people who supported Trump, worked for Trump, or funded Trump. You know, anybody, anybody on the right, the real right, not the fake Egg McMuffin liberal right. AOC has suggested this sort of thing. A lot of people have. And now we've got the allegedly wonderful conservative guy. I got to tell you something. The fact that this guy was a spook for so many years, that he had access to some information that the rest of us did not have access to, that he had the protection of various clearances, that doesn't make me feel very good about our government. I don't know what this guy did overseas, but I don't like that he had any sort of covert powers in this country because he's obviously a petty little tyrant who should be kept away from the levers of power forever. They talk about Trump as an authoritarian. It's these people. It's these swamp creatures that are the authoritarians. President Trump is the most democratic, transparent element in our politics in my lifetime, and frankly, for a great deal before my lifetime as well. And there are a lot of clandestine operations going on, not just overseas, many clandestine operations going on right here in our own country. The chairman of the Georgia Republican Party just came out and tweeted, quote, let me repeat, Fulton County election officials told the media and our observers that they were shutting down the tabulation center at State Farm Arena at 10.30 p.m. on election night, only to continue counting ballots in secret until 1 a.m. No one disputes that Fulton County officials falsely announced that the counting of ballots would stop at 10.30 p.m. No one disputes that Fulton County election officials unlawfully resumed the counting of ballots after our observers left the center. This is a pretty troubling theme. That's from David Schaefer, by the way. Highly recommend you follow him on Twitter. He's been giving a lot of great, uh, a lot of great updates on all of this. 
what people keep telling us is that, listen, you can't make up 10,000, 20,000, even 50,000 ballots in, in the discrepancy between Trump and Biden. You can't make it up on fraud because fraud generally is, is pretty thin. That's true. Usually you cannot. We're in an unprecedented, unprecedented situation with these mail-in ballots. This has never happened before in our history. We've never had widespread unsolicited mail-ins. And so because those are more open to fraud and there's no evidence to the contrary, because it never happened before, you just have to use common sense here because of that. And because we seem to find a, I won't say it's a coordinated effort, but it's certainly a coincidental effort that Republican poll watchers are being kicked out uh, in, dramatically in Philly, even after a court order, they're being kicked out in Georgia where they kicked out elsewhere too. We're finding out the glitches, the little glitches in the, in the machines of these voting places uh, wrongly switched thousands of votes from Trump to Biden because of software that's used on 47 machines. Now the election officials are saying, oh, that was just a glitch. It was a human error. We caught the glitch, just happened in one place, no big deal. Well, forgive me, if I'm a little skeptical of those claims, seem to be happening all over the country, all in these very tightly contested races. We need to shed light on those things. We're going to shed light through the legal process and the courts to see who won the 2020 election. But we should, we should be shedding light on a lot of the fetid clandestine information that has uh, gone around in our deep bureaucracy for far too long. Politics makes very strange bedfellows. You know, the idea that I'm now opposing a, a guy who worked on the Hill, he was a lifelong Republican, it seems. He says he was a conservative, served in the CIA. I do know people who served honorably in the CIA. The idea that we're opposing this now is a little strange, but those are the circumstances that we're in. That is the kind of treatment that Egg McMuffin and people like him have earned. Even more bizarre, I find myself siding with a Democrat in this case, Joe Manchin. He's the closest thing to a conservative Democrat left in the country. He's from West Virginia, so he has to be. President Trump is still going to duke this out. We did just get some good news that if Joe Biden does ascend to the presidency, that uh, if this Georgia election does not go our way, if they find more Democrat ballots, that the Democrats still will not be able to ram through their agenda because Joe Manchin, a Democrat, will stop it. If both of the Georgia uh, senators were elected from the Democratic Party, uh, then that would be 50-50 if both Dan Sullivan and Tom Tillis win. 50-50 means there's a tie. But if one senator does not vote on a Democratic side, there is no tie and there is no bill. So I commit to you tonight and I commit to all of your viewers and everyone else that's watching. I want to lay those fears, I want to rest those fears for you right now because when they talk about whether it be packing the courts, or ending the filibuster. I will not vote to do that. I will not vote to pack the courts, I think, and I will not vote to end the filibuster. Brett, this system, the Senate was so unique body in the world. It was made to work together in a bipartisan way. And once you start breaking down those barriers, then you lose every, every reason that we are the institution that we are, the most deliberate body. So I want to lay those fears to rest, that that won't happen because I will not be the 50th Democrat voting to end that uh, filibuster or to basically uh, stack the court. That is genuinely good news. Now, listen, words are just words until they're translated into action. So let's hope that, that Joe Manchin would stand by that. But I think what Joe Manchin is seeing is something we all saw on election night, which is that we were told there's going to be a blue wave. You remember that? There's going to be a blue wave across the country. And yet there wasn't. 
Now, after the election, magically votes are appearing that are going to maybe swing a, a Senate seat or two. But it didn't happen. The Republicans didn't get blown out in the Senate. We picked up seats in the House. And it sure looked like we won the presidential election on election night. And who knows how it'll turn out in the courts. Even if we don't end up maintaining the White House, there was no blue wave. And the progressives, I th many Democrats believe, caused that shellacking. So a lot of more conservative or more moderate Democrats are now saying, I don't want to be part of that. Well, if, if Joe Manchin says he won't vote to end the filibuster, if Joe Manchin says he won't vote to pack the court, well, all of a sudden, some of the most radical proposals from the Democrats are gone. Something tells me he wouldn't vote to make Puerto Rico a state or DC, heaven forfend, a state either. That is a little bit of good news. Joe Manchin explains what's he going to be against? What's he going to oppose? He, he says, at this point, he's basically a Republican. And in all the other things you're hearing about, Brett, also is defund the police. I don't know of any of the Democrats in the caucus that are for defunding the police. We're not for that whatsoever. And when they talk about basically uh, Medicare for all, we can't even pay for Medicare for some. Doesn't make any sense at all. We've got to fix the Affordable Care Act we have. And I think our Republican, moderate Republicans will work with us to now repair what needs to be repaired. Also great news. The thing is that elected Democrats have very largely supported defunding the police. They've been pretty open about it. And just through the Green New Deal, that's a, a major radical proposal that talks about redistributing wealth. It talks about a Medicare for all. It just includes it. It includes a healthcare plan in it. Kamala Harris, the vice president, endorsed it. She was, she was, I believe, the first Senate sponsor of that legislation. So there, there are some I don't think Joe Manchin is telling the truth about his colleagues here, but at least he's telling the truth about himself. Hopefully that will lead to the soul searching that some people thought you'd get from the Democrats. It won't lead to it on a party-wide level, but if you, can, if you can chip away at one or two Democratic senators, that does help us. Politics makes very strange bedfellows. We're, we're in a situation now I, I never thought we would be in, which is that the conservative Republican president hates Fox News. Trump, Trump hates Fox News. Trump used to love Fox News and Fox used to love Trump. Conservatives used to love Fox News. Fox used to love conservatives. Now, do you know who loves Fox News? Brian Stelter at CNN. We did talk about Fox News and he's very disappointed at Fox News at very crucial moments. Uh, the debate Chris Wallace is moderating was terrible, really hurt, I think, uh, the president. And then, you know, they called the election. They called Arizona with 14% of the vote in. You, many other networks never called it. Meanwhile, they wouldn't call Florida for hours. Why? What was going on at Fox News that they didn't want to give the president the sense that he was winning or had the potential shot of winning? Fox um, has a I great decision desk. I respect their decision desk. They don't, they, don't, they don't do it like that. They don't play games like that. Chris? I think media malpractice, let's look at the Fox News poll. It was off by what, eight points? Almost every poll was in, the data coming out of Fox was not good at all. Yeah, we're gonna and, get into the uh, polls, but, but the Fox uh, the Fox polls were scientific. They were trying their best. I love the, oh, I love Fox News. Yeah, we here at CNN, man, last couple days, man, we've just been loving Fox News. Frankly, they made us blush a little bit when they called Arizona for Joe Biden before anybody and for no reason whatsoever. We said, Fox, slow it down. I know you want to you want to seem like us for a couple days, but come on. So anyway, in conclusion, Chris, and no, we, we love Fox News over here at CNN. That, that was Chris Ruddy, by the way. Uh, Chris Ruddy is the head of Newsmax, which is a uh, conservative competitor to Fox, and uh, Newsmax has remained quite conservative. Uh, you know, th this, 
this changing of the guard, this changing of political perspectives on cable news reminds us among the established outlets, there is no conservative voice. There isn't one. We thought there was, but there isn't. It's all against conservatives. And now it seems it's against the president. If you want to replace that established media, you ought to go to dailywire.com, become an all access member. That's our elite tier of membership and, uh, and support that replacement media. We've got a lot of great plans this year. This is actually my last show in my studio here in Los Angeles. I'm, I think I'm basically the last guy in the building. I'm going to turn the lights off behind me. We are heading to Nashville. We've got some great plans ahead. We're bringing Candace Owens over to the Daily Wire, which has been in the works for, I don't know, five years, but uh, recently it's been in the works for you know, a month or two. We've got some great plans for her and a lot of other people, a lot of new creative content coming out there. So make sure you head on over to Daily Wire and subscribe. We'll be right back with a lot more. We are back. We have to replace the media. I don't even think it's just the news media we have to replace. We've got to replace the Hollywood media. We've got to replace all aspects of the media. I, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken the other day because I thought there are so few good guys in Hollywood. Forget conservatives. I just mean guys who are kind of balanced or kind of normal, who aren't constantly prattering on about politics when all I want to do is watch them in the movie or watch them in the TV show. And Chris Rock, not Chris Rock, The Rock, <laughs> different rocks. The Rock broke my heart. Chris Rock actually didn't break my heart. He's still pretty funny. But The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson broke my heart. The Rock came out, he was kind of a moderate Republican. He's now, he came out and endorsed Joe Biden. And that's not even my big problem with him. The Rock said that when Joe Biden won, he hasn't won yet, but when Joe Biden won, when the media decided to call it for Biden, the Rock cried. Uh, I wanted to shoot this yesterday uh, when the news broke, but um, but I, I got a little emotional. Uh, admittedly so, I got a little emotional uh, yesterday. Manly tears, of course. I may have cried a tear or two or ten, uh, but they were all very manly. All my tears are manly. Um, but the reason why I got emotional yesterday was 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 because of what I felt my vote represented. And I was talking to Lauren, my wife, we were talking about our two little baby girls, and, and that's exactly what my vote represented. My vote represented my little daughters. My vote represented humanity. My vote represented decency. Uh, it represented the values and the principles uh, of which we, we, we teach our little girls. And my vote also, for me, represented the importance of just being a good, decent human being. So nothing that he just said means anything. It's, it, it's as though he went up to a platitude slot machine and just kept, he put, kept putting quarters in, you know, he pulled it and he said, decency. Yeah, I voted for decency. And yeah, and my daughters, your daughter, whatever, I guess we're all voting for our family, right? Isn't that? And, and cha-ching and cha-ching decency. Joe Biden is a crooked liar plagiarist one of the most notorious in the country. He is a complete empty suit. Even if you don't like Trump, you're going to say, we elected an empty suit who's a crook, whose family enriched themselves by peddling American influence. That makes me feel so decent. 
my daughters are going to love that. Why? Your daughters like crooks? Why? Your daughters like peddling American influence? I don't, th- I don't think your daughters probably care about the election at all, frankly. But people always do this. They exploit their kids for the election. That's what demagogues do. He cried over this. Have you cried over presidential elections? Asking the men in the audience here, have you cried? Even Trump, I loved that Trump got elected. I got such a kick out of that. I didn't cry. And you know, I hated that Obama got elected. And I really hated that he got reelected. I didn't cry. Drank a little bit. I didn't, I cry? That's very embarrassing. We want to talk about a national embarrassment. That's a, that's a national embarrassment to go out and say this publicly. But it seems to me that what The Rock is trying to do is position himself to have a political career. I think that's why he's taking these stands right now. I think his, his calculations are pretty cynical. I think he was always a kind of moderate Republican. There have always been, there's a little been a little chatter that The Rock might get involved in politics. Again, I'm just speculating, but I suspect that does describe or, or explain why he keeps coming out with these videos. And he thought he picked a winner and maybe he did, but he is now, he's gone from being a, a kind of moderate centrist, quiet Republican to just parroting democratic talking points. Notably, he had to hit the identity politics. He had to talk about how wonderful it is that Kamala Harris may be elected vice president because of course, not because she's smart, not because she's ever done anything in her career, because she, she is a woman and not just a woman, a woman of color. The second congratulations, of course, goes to our brand new vice president-elect Kamala Harris, uh, the very first woman ever. Um, to become a vice president and certainly the first woman of color uh, to become a vice president as a as a man of color and as a man who um, loves and respects women. Uh, This is pretty special. So first of all, again, this little bit at the end here sounded a little forced. It sounded like, uh, I don't know, like he was, there was some subtext to it where he goes, and as a man who loves and respects women, like I love women, I, you'll never find a greater supporter of women than me. And they're like, why are you, why are you defending yourself like that, pal? No one's making any accusations. But then he, he opens it up in this typically liberal way, progressive way, where, where it is better to be a woman than a man, and it's better to be of color, whatever that means, than white. And so he says, Kamala Harris, she's the first woman to be elected vice president. And she's certainly the first woman of color to be elected vice president. You say, well, hold on. You're saying she's the first woman. So obviously she would be the first woman of color. Then you make a a point, you're saying she's certainly the first woman, as if it's in doubt as to whether we had a white woman vice president, which I I suppose we could have had Hillary won and Tim Kaine became the vice president. I suppose that would have been possible. What is he referring to? Is he making some kind of snide remark about Dan Quayle? Hey, Kamala, she got elected, right? I guess. I guess if the, if the media are to be believed, maybe she didn't get elected. Then you have to take this video down. And, and that's the question that he, he gets to because he's, he's assuming the narrative that they've gotten elected. And then he says, what does this mean? What does this vote mean? This very high, hotly contested vote that's going all the way up to the courts. What does it mean for our nation? And you know what he says? He says, it means we're unified. We have had the biggest voter turnout in the history of the United States. And, you know, that is such a big deal because, you know, it tells me, number one, we were unified on that day. And just in terms of everybody coming together, every, everybody uh, coming out to vote, uh, mailing in your ballots, doing everything you possibly can, exercising the democratic right to vote, which was a beautiful thing. Okay. People did exercise their right to vote. Maybe some cadavers ex- exercise that right too. 
But the one thing it didn't prove is that we're unified. This is a hotly contested election with lots of talk of irregularities and lots of lawsuits that even if these numbers are completely right, is one of the narrowest elections at any level that we've ever had in this country. That isn't unity. <laughs> That's division. And the left is not promoting unity whatsoever. I'll give you just an example on campuses. Bates College in Maine did a series. They did a series about voting in the 2020 election. They posted photos to their Instagram account of various student organizations and various students. One of whom, I know this is shocking, one of whom was a Republican, was the head of the college Republicans. There was a rally to pressure the administration to take the photo down. The school's president showed up to the rally to tell the administration that he or she runs to take the photo down. And then the school's president apologized for the photo because you're not allowed to be a Republican on campus. You're not allowed to be a conservative on campus. It's not permitted. Unity, time for healing, time for coming together. I don't think so. I think, I, I think they're, they're giving us on the left this kind of soft rhetoric so that we will concede an election that we should not concede yet, that hasn't played out the full legal process. And something tells me that these lists that all these people are making, the punishment lists, the Trump Accountability Project, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, tells me those are a little bit more indicative of what we have in store if Biden wins this election. It's a politics of division. The left always talks about this politics of division. And it's kind of funny because the politics of division sometimes loops back on the leftists themselves. Eva Longoria, who it's a name that I've heard, but I actually don't have any idea what she's done. I know that she's famous, you know, she's in Hollywood or something. And I know that she's a left winger. Eva Longoria came out and she was celebrating the election that the media have already called. And she said, the people we've really got to thank here, the, the real people that we got to thank are Latina women. Here she is. The women of color showed up in big ways. Of course, you saw uh, in Georgia what, what uh, uh, black women have done, but the Latina women were the real heroines here, beating men yeah. in turnout in every state and voting for Biden-Harris at an average rate close to three to one. And, and that wasn't surprising to us. You know, Latinos are the CEOs of the households. They make all the financial decisions and healthcare decisions and educational decisions. Many Latinas are small business owners and they wanted a plan for recovery um, for themselves, not for Wall Street. And so Trump's policies were never aimed at the struggling Latina community. And, you know, if you look at voter suppression on top of that, how Latinas showed up, even through through the closing of polling places and the shutting down mm. of drop-off sites and new voter ID laws and long lines and driving 30 miles and, and all of that. And on top of that, restrictions and safety protocols of a, of a pandemic. That spirit and perseverance that, that Latinas use in their daily lives, the struggle to pay their bills and the struggle to show up to their jobs and homeschool their kids and take care of their elders, that's the same perseverance and spirit they use to show up at the polls. Wow, so brave and so many lies in that statement, so many inaccurate statements. First of all, I love, we now have the highest voter turnout ever, you know, if, if these numbers are to be believed, highest voter turnout ever. And yet the, the liberals are still talking about voter suppression. I don't think the vote was suppressed. <laughs> I think when you have uh, 71 and 73 or 74 million people voting uh, on each side, I, I think the vote is, has not been suppressed. The other thing that drives me crazy in her statement before we even get to the meat of it is she speaks English very well. 
She speaks English just as well as I do, except for that one word. She gets to that word, which is a kind of contrived uh, statement. I actually agree with some leftists on this point, that the idea of the Latina or Latino or Hispanic, rather than people from specific countries like Guatemala or Mexico or El Salvador, the idea of the pan-Hispanic thing is kind of a, a contrivance of liberals to try to create racial solidarity modeled after the black civil rights movement in the 60s. That's a bit of a digression. Her pronunciation of the word Latina is ridiculous. She is speaking English. And when you pronounce the word Latina in English, it's pronounced Latina or Hispanic, or I don't know, you could get more specific on the nationality. It is not pronounced Latina because that's not how you say words in English. For instance, I am Italian. I'm of Italian extraction, Sicilian to be specific. I speak Italian. I read Italian. I go to Italian restaurants. And when I go to Italian restaurants, and I get my menu, which is invariably in English, I'll see some Italian words there. So, and I'll talk to my waiter. Even if the waiter is Italian, mostly we speak in English. Maybe we'll chat a little bit in Italian. Mostly we speak in English. And when I'm speaking and I order, I say, okay, yeah, I'd like uh, an iced tea and I'd like a uh, Caesar salad to start. And then I would like uh, gli spaghetti alle vongole. And then I would like the, the, the bread pudding for dessert, please. No, I don't do that. I don't do that, even though I get gli spaghetti, gli spaghetti alla carbonara. I could say that, but that's very silly and ridiculous because I'm speaking English. The same thing holds for Latina. People should drop that silly pronunciation. If you want to uni unify, bring us all together, then speak English. That's fine. But that's not what got Eva Longoria in trouble. What got Eva Longoria in trouble is that she focused on Latina women to the exclusion of black women. She said Latina women were the real heroes. She didn't realize where Latina women rank on the hierarchy of victimhood on the intersectionality scale. They have more privilege, it turns out, than black women. And so she apologized and said black women have long been the backbone of the Democratic Party, which as a, as a matter of fact is not true. For most of the history of the Democratic Party, white slave owners were the backbone of the Democratic Party. Uh, and in recent history, I don't, I mean, I suppose black women do vote Democrat at large numbers, but you know, the, uh, black Americans are 12% of the population, something like that. Black women about six and a half percent. So they may vote Democrat in strong numbers. It wouldn't be the backbone of the party, right? Because they're just numerically, there just aren't enough of those voters. But she had to pander to, she had to apologize. And I'm perfectly happy that Eva Longoria had to apologize. Before we go today, I'd like to point out something that no one is going to talk to you about today, because what we're going to talk about when we think of our country is national embarrassments, to use Joe Biden's phrase. They're going to tell you this country is awful. It's racist, sexist, you know, bigoted, uh, evil, colonial, I don't know, whatever. And they're going to say the country started in 1619 when the first slave ship arrived in Virginia, but it didn't. That's not true. The country started the following year in 1620. Actually, on this very day in 1620, when the pilgrims landed at Cape Cod. Now, they did not all disembark at Cape Cod. They then went down to Plymouth Rock. And we'll talk more about the Plymouth Plantation when we get to that wonderful day in history. But today was the day that the pilgrims landed in America. And the pilgrims founded our country. And they signed the Mayflower Compact to all live together. The pilgrims, who were these radical Protestant zealots, and the, the strangers, who were not particularly zealous, and some of them got into some bad stuff. Coincidentally, four of my ancestors were on that ship. 
One of them was a very good, upright, virtuous pilgrim. Three of them were kind of derelicts, the strangers. Dr. Samuel Fuller was the pilgrim. And then uh, Stephen Hopkins was one of the strangers. John Billington was the first man executed for murder in the New World. And Francis Eaton was the, the fourth one. Those guys and the other passengers of the Mayflower helped to found this country. That's, that's the starting point. And it's, when the 1619 Project talks about reframing American history, they're talking, they're not even just talking about rewriting. They, they are being honest. They're reframing it. Where do you put the focus? When you're making a movie, when you frame something, you decide what you're going to put into focus and how you're going to adjust that lens. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make you forget about the pilgrims. They're trying to make you forget about the Mayflower. They're trying to make you forget about the first Thanksgiving. They're trying to make you forget about the Mayflower Compact and Plymouth Plantation and the, the heritage that we took from England, care of Leiden and the Netherlands, all the way here. They want you to forget about that in favor of what? They want you to forget about our legal processes for the Constitution, how to conduct elections. Don't forget about it. Have a toast today to the pilgrims. They probably would not have had much of a toast. They were sort of teetotalers. They had beer because it was uh, safer, but uh, uh, maybe you can have a toast to the pilgrims today to hope to, to very difficult times that our country's gone through, which the pilgrims certainly endured. Half of them died in that first winter and, uh, and to coming out better for it, to having hope in Providence, which they certainly did. And I do too. And we'll have to see how it plays out in the short run. In the long run though, I'm sure we'll all be safe. I'm Michael Knowles. This is the Michael Knowles show. Keep the faith. That's the way that you can be safe. And we will see you tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producers, Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Assistant director, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Audio mixer, Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup, Nika Geneva. And production assistant, Ryan Love. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. Hey everyone, it's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. Trump continues to fight the fight for the election, but there's a fight up ahead no matter what happens next, and that's the fight to replace the media. We're all over it on The Andrew Claven Show.